Last Sunday we were talking about the body. And um, someone raised uh, raised their hand and wanted to ask a question. And I said uh, that we have a question and answer period about every four Sundays or so. And would, we, would, would they please wait until then? And then at the end of the talk, I said that next time we might talk about uh, illness and uh, catastrophic illness also depression and different things like that. Uh, so this is how you get yourself in trouble. You see. <laughs> uh, so what I thought we could do is, since someone did have a question and there might be others, I thought we could have a question and answer period this morning. And if you have any questions on what we've talked about so far about the body, uh, please bring them up and we can talk about that now. And I might just say a few general words about what we might get into next Sunday. <laughs> uh, but probably won't. There is, at this time, obviously, a tremendous fear about illness. It's, a, it's one of those current preoccupations that we've talked about so much. We talked about the preoccupation last time with weight, the preoccupation with even eating quickly. It's actually a preoccupation. It's actually a decision that most people have made at this time to not eat but to simply jam the food down their throats and get out of there as quickly as possible to do something else while they're eating. And so the body doesn't feel as though it is eaten. Of course it's upset and hungry and so forth as a result. And in other talks, we've, we've uh, spoken of uh, other preoccupations. Illness is unquestionably a preoccupation of this time. So there are many, many articles on it. There are many cures. There are new cures all the time, new systems. There are new diseases. So there's the passing away of some diseases, and then immediately uh, two or three or four new diseases <coughs> take their place. We have a new flu. It doesn't matter how many antibodies you have for last year's flu. <laughs> because this year's flu will be different. And this is, of course, part of the nature of what we might call the collective ego. It's the nature of the world, that it be this way. No matter what problem you've just taken care of, you will have another one today. And so on and so on. That's why it's very important not to get caught up and solving our current problem. Not to put too much emphasis on that. Solve it quickly and happily and forget it. Uh, and then go on to the next one. Now, illness, being such a fearful subject at this time, attracts a common mistake that we make in our lives tempts us to make it, especially in this area. And that is to have 
some pattern of fear, some dynamic of fear, take root in our life. And I would imagine that there probably isn't anyone here today that doesn't have such a pattern. I'm not saying that everyone is conscious of what their pattern may be, but it's unlikely that you don't have one or two or three or more of these patterns. A pattern of fear, something that seems established, something that seems part of your identity. And this is the problem with illnesses, is that we oftentimes have an example of an illness as we grow up. So I had, for example, a parent who had chronic back trouble. So as I grew up, I developed a belief in the reality of back trouble. It was, it was, it was as if I, I knew you could get in trouble that way. I deeply believed this for sure could get you. And all of us grew up with certain things like that. And so it is not uncommon. It's certainly there's no absolute cause and effect relationship between these two, but it's not at all uncommon that we do have similar problems uh, that our parents or guardians or whatever had. Now, you've seen me deal with several different patterns. I've tried to be open and honest about these. So you've, you've seen the weight situation uh, go away, and that one seems to uh, be behind me. Uh, I don't seem to have much problem with that anymore. Uh, there's one that's about, uh, I would say, three quarters gone, but not totally, and that is uh, uh, the colds and the flus and that kind of thing, which I had more of than is happy to have. <laughs> uh, now, I don't expect to reach a state where I will never have another cold or another flu, and this is part of the ability to walk away from it. We have, especially in the spiritual movement, taken on the assumption that it is unnatural to be sick, that it's natural to have a body that has no sickness and that this is somehow good and more spiritual and that it is unnatural to be sick and that if we are sick, we have chosen the illness and we are wrong. We are bad, in fact, because we chose it. So our attention immediately shifts to, well, how did I choose this? What did I do? And is there so in addition to all the symptoms, the runny nose and the headache and whatever else is going on, now there's the question of how did I do this? And we plague ourselves and torture ourselves with that one. It is extremely difficult to, to realize that nothing in this world is either good or bad. Nothing in this world is spiritual, and nothing in this world is unspiritual. There is, for example, no spiritual way to die. And yet, at this time, there is a belief that there are certain spiritual ways to die and certain unspiritual. Especially, it's believed that there are certain unspiritual ways to die. 
So no matter how spiritual you appeared, if you die in a car accident or plane accident, this strips the cover of innocence off of you and we, <laughs> we see what an ego laggard you are. Somehow a truly spiritual person would not die of cancer. But natural causes, such as stroke, heart attack, uh, kidney failure, these are very spiritual. <laughs> and in addition to that, we have, we, have, we have sort of very narrowly defined illness. So that uh, if we're angry or if we're unhappy, that's not illness. Even if we, if we get an injury while exercising, while building our body, beautiful. If we, if we pull a, uh, a tendon, if we strain a knee, this is not considered illness, it's not considered sickness. It can even be somewhat of a badge of courage. I can remember uh, once I was at a party and I had a... Uh, these things, this is why I don't go to parties anymore. <laughs> I, had a, uh, I had a bandage on my uh, face, a little small bandage. And a guy came up to me who rode the big bikes. And he said, you had a biking accident, didn't you? Threw you right over, didn't you? I bet you are going up one of those arroyos. <laughs> I said, no, I don't ride a bike anymore. Uh, there was a time in which I did ride a bike. And I said, no, I said, I had a growth on my face and had it removed. <laughs> and I mean, the guy just stepped back and he found someone else to talk to. <laughs> this was not spiritual. It was an old growth. And uh, it uh, kept growing and it was beginning to beginning to preoccupy me a little bit. I was beginning to become self-conscious about it, so I just had it taken off. Now, what you want to look for, and I say, this is just, we're just going to make a few, little, well, this is what's called an appetizer, a, a sermon appetizer, as, uh, <laughs> as uh, Manny would say, you see. <laughs> Give them just a little vegetable pate, highly seasoned with garlic, just enough for them to drool until next Sunday. So what you want to look for is this pattern of fear that may have been established already in your life. And what I want to say to you is, there is no hopeless condition. If you will sit quietly, if you allow yourself any option, you can walk beyond anything that is hindering your progress home. And so that's what we wish. We wish to walk home. We wish to awaken. We have not yet reached the point, although there are those who have reached this point, where we can simply sit down and awaken to God. But you will reach that point, and it is not so far off as you think. If you'll work hard, if you will concentrate. And you do not need to suffer on the way. 
there does not need to be a major roadblock in your path. And yet most people incorporate several of these roadblocks as part of their identity. And so to do the little exercise that I suggested of standing before a mirror and just seeing your body as it is, not as it was five years ago, or not as you think it may become again because once you are overweight or pimply, heaven forbid. <laughs> That's not spiritual either. <laughs> now, um, liver spots from too much sun. Now, there's a question about that one. That one may be all right, you see. That may be okay if you've really been baking out there year after you're doing your duty. And uh, if your skin is beginning to blotch just a little bit and you're getting a little bit weathered looking, perhaps this is somewhat, this is certainly not categorically uh, ego. So look for the pattern of fear. Please believe me when I tell you you can walk beyond it, provided you do not set the terms of what that means. It may, means, may mean you will heal this condition. You'll eliminate it entirely. It may mean that you will modify it in such a way that it's no longer a preoccupation. It may mean simply that you reach a little different mental state where the condition remains but it is not distracting you or a hundred other ways but all you need is one way for it no, to no longer be a distraction because what you wish is love the love of God you wish not to feel alone anymore. We speak of the angels of heaven. We speak of the hosts of heaven. We speak of those who have laid aside their egos and are here to help you. The higher teachers who are here, who whisper so gently in your ear that you don't even recognize it. And it's, there's no need for you to recognize it. We speak of the fact that we are watched over and cared for. But for many of us, these words are so hollow, so hollow, so meaningless, so irrelevant to our life. You must clear away a certain amount of the knowledge before you will be able to hear the song of heaven. That's not too complicated. That's not too unreasonable. If our mind, our heart, our purpose is filled with a myriad of goals, if we're running all over the place, if our mind is jumping all over the place, if we get caught up in one thing after the other, if we can't go through a single day without taking on some unhappiness very quickly, where is the place for the voice of God? Where is the place for the peace and the stillness of Christ? You must empty out your life to some degree before there will be a place where you will be able to hear 
God, the song of God, the joy of God. Because a life that is crammed is a heart that does not yet wish to hear the peace of God. So do not be afraid to do this preliminary work. Do not be afraid to bring peace to your body. Look at what pattern of fear may have been established. And then begin taking steps, small steps, large steps. It matters not as long as they're done in peace. As long as you have sat quietly and decided what you wish to try next, and then you try something else and something else and something else, and very slowly you'll begin to walk around the problem. And every once in a while there will be a problem that will vanish quickly. None of this matters. It's just that you make the decision you will no longer be distracted by this. And so by modifying our diet, Gail and I have not eliminated colds and flu, although we have reduced the number, but we have learned how to virtually eliminate the symptoms of a bad cold or flu. So even though we know we have it, because if we go back to the old way of eating, the symptoms come back, we've simply learned through very, very simple methods how not to have the symptoms. If you don't have the symptoms, it hardly matters that you still have the illness. Unless, of course, it's extremely important for you to dive back into the old way of eating. And, of course, for many people, this is still more important than God. Although they know that they're eating in such a way that, that it keeps their body stirred up and it keeps them feeling bad and miserable, and they don't have enough energy and they can't do the things that they would like to do, they have simply not asked themselves, which do I love most? God or... <laughs> name it. I won't... <laughs> So many people in the food business here, I can't name food much anymore. <laughs> so we will get a little bit more into that next time. Oh, I did mention a third thing. Oh, a third thing that I would say that that is not that I'm about one third through. So I had back three years ago, let's say, I had three things that were distracting me about my body. One was my weight and the symptoms that that was causing. The second was the colds and the flu. And the third was the back, back problem. So I'm about a third through the back thing, about two-thirds through the cold and flu, and perhaps mostly through the, the weight, calorie, all that kind of stuff. Now, on the back... At this point, I'm simply doing anything that comes to mind that seems simple and that I can do in peace. But just as with the weight, and to some degree with the other, I found that a time came in which I was not making sufficient progress. You see, what happens is that the fear establishes itself. There's a pattern in our life and we actually get to the point where we just don't want to make it any worse. Yes, we're overweight, but we don't want to gain even more weight. Or yes, we're frequently sick, but we don't want to be even more sickly. Or yes, we've got 
back pain, or yes, we've got headaches, or yes, we've got whatever it may be, insomnia or whatever. And we're, we get to the point where we're afraid to try anything because we can remember one incident in which we tried something and it seemed to make it worse. And so the focus of our attention, whether it's depression or anger or cramping or whatever it may be, the focus of our attention actually becomes just not to rock the boat. And we actually would rather keep the condition stabilized than to try to walk beyond it. If you will look closely at your pattern of fear, you will see that this is in fact what you do. That you do in fact know some things that you could try, but you've been telling yourself reasons why not try them. Look closely at this. This is not a happy attitude and it's illogical. So, what I have done is I have reached the point with my back where now I realize I must do something dramatic. Not fearful, not terrifying, but dramatic. Because I can see that the condition is sort of stabilized. I make a little progress and then I have a setback and I make a little progress and I have a setback. Now, as to what you try, it is completely individual. You simply find something that would be a powerful symbol for you. Something that, that focuses your attention, so to speak. But once again, not something that's terrifying. At this point, having an operation on my back is, is, to, is not a peaceful idea. It's a very unpeaceful idea for me, although I have two friends who had operations on their backs and they've had no back problems for many years now. So, of course, we hear horror stories about operations on the back. But that, that's just one that I'm not ready to do or want to do, and so it's, it wouldn't be good for me to do. If, I, if you do something and there's a tremendous amount of fear involved in doing it, that fear must take form in your life. So you're merely getting a trade-off. You may get rid of the original problem, but the fear that you take in when you take the step will create another problem. This is often called a side effect. So the, the uh, drug has a side effect, or the operation suddenly has a si side effect, or the therapy suddenly has a side effect. And you realize there hasn't really been any gain. But you can take a dramatic step. So, for example, I mentioned with, uh, with the weight, you can go ahead and go to a diet center. You can go ahead and try some of the new techniques for eliminating uh, headaches. You can go ahead and look at the research that's being done on premenstrual syndrome and try them. Some of them are a little radical, but that doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, that can even be good if the pattern is set in. This now seems to be part of your identity. And you can do it without a great deal of fear. I'm not saying it may not be hard to do it. So the way that I broke the weight thing was I went to a doctor which was a very difficult thing for me personally to do. 
having, you know, been raised a Christian scientist and so forth. So once before I had a bad back situation and I was rolfed. This was before the days of painless rolfing. <laughs> and uh, I had no back problems for several years after that, but I upped my mileage in running uh, and just negated eventually all the work that was done. So I've decided to go back and be rolfed, and I found one that still does it the old way because I know that I personally have more belief in the old painful way than I do in the painless way. <laughs> of course that's insane. <laughs> but what's what we're working with? You see, in the spiritual, in the, in the spiritual movement, there is this dichotomy between what we called mental work and, and overt work, or, or, or uh, uh, external means. But people, the world is mental. And so when you do something overt, you are doing something mental. And if you will look at it that way, then look at your beliefs, look at your preferences. Yes, everybody's touting this new form of medicine, but you look over here and you realize you still have faith in this old form of medicine. So, of course, it will be more helpful for you to go to the person in whom you have confidence. Don't be confused. Do not confuse yourself. There is something within you that knows. There isn't anyone here who hasn't given lip service to that concept. There is something within you that knows. So don't go talking to a lot of people. Don't read every article. Maybe read a few articles or a book or two or something. But don't keep confusing yourself. After you've gotten enough information on whatever your problem may be, bad teeth, the eye's not working, and you've, you've tried the Bates Huxley, and it's just not doing it for you, and so forth. Then sit down and in peace go to that place within you that knows. It's not a scary place. It's not a weird place. There are no sparks in the ozone. It's just a quiet place where you know. And you say to yourself, I want to walk home. How much longer do I wish this condition to delay me? I love God. I want to be a part of the awakening now, not a part of the problem. I don't want to be a walking, sleeping pill. I want to be a strong cup of coffee. Oh, whoa, whoa. All right. Not spiritual, right? A big dose of brewer's yeast. Of course you do. Of course you do. It's all right to be happy. It's all right not to be delayed. It's all right to make fast and easy progress. You do not have to spend thousands of years at this. You heard that here first, people. So sit down, look at your life, see what's delaying you, and begin 
little steps or big steps, it doesn't matter as long as you do them in peace because it is peace toward which you are walking. And so the steps themselves must be peaceful. But they can be any step at all. Any step in the world is yours to take. Any step. There is no spiritual or unspiritual step, but there's a lot of confusing advice if you start talking to people and asking their opinions. And you'll get so hopelessly confused that you will not be able to hear that part of you that knows the answer. All right. That was a big appetizer, wasn't it? Let's see. Um, now, I've got a written question here, which I will fall back on. Uh, if we're too timid today. So, is anyone anything that anybody would like to bring up? Comment, question, yeah. Uh, I want. Would you talk about what? What is the value, or is there any, in your estimation, of dealing with the past in terms of discovering how we're programmed? And how our belief systems and attitudes that are operating presently are rooted in the past. All right. Once again, this is, of course, uh, oh, let me repeat the question. Is there any value in dealing with the pa past? Uh, going back and looking at the past, uh, seeing how it connects to the future, letting, you know, perhaps letting go of the past, or there's uh, any number of approaches that deal, or at least appear to deal with the past. Psychoanalysis appears to deal with the past. But there's many, many other, of course, ways that deal with the past. There are even physical ways that deal with the past, such as going back and crawling if you didn't crawl enough, or screaming if you didn't scream enough, and so forth. Once again, there is no right or wrong about any of these approaches. There is nothing unspiritual about lying on a couch and talking about your past for 15 years. That is not unspiritual. If you are making progress and you have a sense of being cared for, then that is fine to do that. It is not necessary every time that a new therapy or a new system comes along that all the other systems be suddenly debunked along with it. There is no right or wrong. So you simply look in your heart and see, do you believe that this would be helpful? Do you think there is something back there in your past that you need to look at? Then it is in the present. It is a present problem, even though you are calling it something in the past. It's disturbing you in the present. Now, if you have no particular belief about your past hurting you, then it isn't, of course, necessary to go and form such a belief if you don't wish to and get someone to tell you all the horrible things in your past. But if you, if you wish to look at that, it is fine. And this, incidentally, does deal with this written question, so let me, at least it deals with the first part of it. How can I live in the real world without planning for the future? In order for me to feel secure, I need income, a home, friends, and lovers. This must be the singles group, don't you think? <laughs> All right. <clears throat> I need uh, <laughs> I need income. Oh, we, we already did that. I I, uh, I am now without 
a steady comma income and frightening myself with fears and so forth and so forth. All right. Uh, uh, so the person goes on and what about uh, dreaming and fantasies and imagining and what about anticipating exciting events and special times and so forth? And this, they quote me about the future here, say, having said something about the, oh, the ego exists only in the past and the future. Everything in this world exists only in the past or in the future. And so this is, of course, once again, one of these very easy little traps that we can fall into. We actually think that there is a way of living in the world in the present. There is no way to live or act or make decisions in the present in an overt sense. This cannot be done because the overtness, even though it's still mental, is entirely the past or the future. So if you will look closely, every single decision that you make during the day deals either with the past or the future, and if it didn't, it would have absolutely no meaning to your ego and you wouldn't even be concerned with it. It would not be a question. It's because you think it has some future implication or it's correcting something that happened in the past that it is even a question in your mind. And so it is not possible to live in that sense in the present. But it is, it is possible to be centered in the present and deal with all this past and future from the present. So you're not caught up and carried away to the past. You're not yearning for the past or fearing a return of the past. You're not preoccupied with what's going to happen tomorrow to the point where you're unavailable to the people around you. So, of course, you deal with the things that you must deal with, and they will all be past and future things. No matter how spiritual someone is, they pick up food for their dinner. They go someplace, and if it's no more than they go in the backyard and, and pull a few tomatoes and brush off a carrot or two. Why would you do such a thing? You see, this is a future-oriented activity to even reach up and nibble an apple with your teeth. Why would you do that if you didn't have some conception of the little apple bits traveling your gullet, settling peacefully in your tummy, and keeping the doctor away for another day? <laughs> it would have no meaning, you see. It would have no meaning why you choose the apple instead of the little berries on the... Uh, Russian olive tree, which incidentally, it, do, it does not have Russians and it does not have olives. But it does have these little berries and you don't eat those because it has no future and it has no past to give it meaning. So the time has come for us to stop confusing ourselves. Let's not confuse ourselves with all this idiocy. And the idiocy is when we take spiritual truth and try to translate it into behavior. You wish to keep your mind in the present because that's where God is. And God is peace. And so if you're deciding in peace, you are in the present. If you are happy, you are in the present. Now, let's look at the exciting upcoming event. Why do we have such an ingrained need to constantly tell ourselves what's going to happen? So here we are, we're going through the day, and we suddenly remember... Ah, this is Wednesday night, so-and-so will be on TV. 
or we're going out tonight, or we've got such and such planned for dinner. And suddenly you seem to feel a little happier because of that remembrance. But notice that it doesn't lift you up and keep you sacred and whole. It doesn't cherish you. Yes, it's a momentary pickup. Yes, there's a little increase in the uh, heartbeat and blood pressure and so forth. The eyes dilate slightly and maybe your toes wiggle. But people, is this all you wish out of life? <laughs> of course not. So I'm not saying you shouldn't. This is a bad thing, an evil thing. But what you want to do is to slowly begin to question these habits. So, for example, notice that when you watch the TV show, after it's over, there's this feeling of, oh, what will I do now? What am I going to do now? Or the people have gone home. Oh, what am I going to do now? What are we going to do tomorrow? So the future is like a drug. If you're substituting it for your love of God, it's like a drug and you can't get enough of it. And it doesn't, it's not a friend, it deserts you. It's there only temporarily. And then it leaves you, it deserts you. And you must run out and get another version of it, and another version, and another version. So you will simply come to the point where you will realize it does not make you happy for you to think about what you don't have now. To think of the lover, since that was mentioned, that you don't have now. The time that isn't there yet. The event that hasn't started. How could this possibly make you happy? Excited? Yes. But this isn't something that anybody needs to rush into. You certainly don't want to begin in a battle with your mind to stop these kinds of thoughts. If you think it makes you happy to dwell on what's going to happen tonight or tomorrow or the upcoming whatever it may be, then fine. Do it in peace. Do it like you eat the chocolates. Don't feel guilty about it. Don't fall into that ego trap. Say, okay, I would like to think about this, so let me think about it with peace and gentleness. Let me enjoy it. Then you're bringing God into it. Now you're making some progress home. Now you are contributing to the peace of the world. And you can contribute to the peace of the world, to the awakening of your brothers and sisters, even while you eat chocolates or watch a TV program or fantasize about what's happening or laugh about what already happened. But you will begin to notice little things like you can't pick up something in the past that was so pleasurable to remember without it turning on you. Within seconds, you're remembering something that hurt. And then you go back and remember something that was funny. And then you remember something that was embarrassing. Notice this. Your ego is not your friend. That is the only lesson to learn. There's a part of your mind that is not your friend. Not because of the mind, but because of what we have placed there. Okay, another... Any other questions? Or... Yes. I have a question about um, the thing I was reading recently. The force was about the 
Right. And then I think of this woman who wrote the only diary that she's ever ever seen. Yes. Right. Sandra Ray, and she talks about that it's good to give the body pleasure. Right. And I know it's a fine line. Well, all right. Did everyone hear the question? Uh, the question was about pleasure. The Course speaks about how the body can't give you pleasure. It actually even goes further than that and points out that bodily pleasure is a distraction. Uh, and people can even read into that, although the Course does not say this, that they should not do things that are pleasurable. Notice the Course never says, don't do this and don't do that. The Course is an absolute statement of truth, and there is almost no reference to behavior whatsoever in it. I'm not saying the word behavior is not used. It's not talked about in general. But there are no lists of do's and don'ts with a few very gentle, gentle exceptions, such as the suggestion that you might want to get up in the morning and set your purpose. It's even as so specific as to say, well, perhaps you would it would be best if you didn't lie down at night when you do your 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 uh, meditation be at night. Best to sit up. There may be half a dozen, maybe less, of little, gentle little helps like that. But basically, it is a pure statement of truth. This church is based on A Course in Miracles. But the function of this church is to bring people to the point where they can begin taking in truth in that form. It doesn't have to be A Course in Miracles, but to the point where you can begin living from the standpoint of absolute truth, which is an extremely advanced stage. And that's all that's going on here. So let's look at this question of pleasure. I've mentioned, for example, Gail and I do the marriage counseling, and, and, and then I, after church, talk to so many couples, married couples, pick couples that are going to get married and so forth. I can't tell you, for example, how often it comes up that one of the people is running after other bodies in one form or another. The form doesn't matter. There's an idol there. And one of the one of the people is running after bodies. They may be having lots of affairs. They may just be flirting in restaurants. They may be just preoccupied with it in some other way. And so the other person, of course, feels deserted, betrayed. My best friend is looking around for someone else. Of course that's what's happening. Let's not be silly about it. Of course that's what's happening. The person is looking around, but the person is innocent. The person simply has an old idol. That's just, the, that's just their way of thinking the world will work. Of course they're wrong, but they can't help it at the moment. But eventually we'll see it's a very unhappy thing to run after bodies. This simply is a very, very unhappy activity. But it takes people a while to see that. Because they keep thinking it was unhappy this last time because of so-and-so. Or because of this situation or that situation. They don't realize that this turmoil that swirls around even little betrayals is part of the betrayal. It, you cannot somehow section it off. Now, no one needs to begin to battle with themselves over this. 
This is just one of the things that falls away. But in the falling away, you will see this distinction in all probability, the distinction between running after bodies and physical pleasure. This is just one of the many things that the world has wrong. It thinks that if you have a body that looks a certain way or has a certain age, it will give you more physical pleasure. And it is not true. It is not true. As a matter of fact, it tends to give you more anxiety. If you have a body that meets some ideal, you don't think you're worthy of it, or now you suddenly become very conscious of your body, and there's simply not the connection that the world says this is a false premise. And yet people think they must run after bodies that look a certain way in order to have pleasure. And that is a false premise. And so here is what I would say. Go ahead and allow yourself pleasure. You do not have to betray. You do not have to win over some other man or win over some other woman in order to have pleasure. If it's pleasure you want, you want, give yourself pleasure. This is one of the very last things that you will lay aside. And it is not usually a good thing for a person to start trying to fight pleasure. It is a very, very mild form of the ego. And so give yourself pleasure. See the difference. Even give yourself fantasies that are pleasurable. This is a very, very mild form. The higher ego comes in and disrupts this process of walking home by trying to get us to tackle things we are nowhere near ready to tackle. What you wish to do is to take a little step. So be generous with yourself. Of course make your body feel good. Give it pleasure in every way that you wish. When the day comes that you realize that you wish to talk to your father and nothing else, you will have no desire to turn and give your body pleasure. It will simply be a distraction. But if you haven't reached that point, why have a battle over this? Notice why your ego wishes you to battle pleasure so that you will become so discouraged that you will completely quit a spiritual path and dive back into the world. And that's not necessary, people. This is not confusing. This is not hard. This is not difficult. This is not sophisticated. This is not complicated. Walking home. All you do is you practice gentleness and peace and happiness as best you can today. If you can't do it a lot, you do it a little. If you've just made a mistake, you, you forget it quickly and go back to just a little bit of peace, a little bit of kindness, a little bit of happiness, as best you can. And then you're taking another step home. And I promise you, you will have the angels of heaven. You will hear the chorus that surrounds you. You will feel the arms lifting you up. You will weep with joy because you will know your Father's love for you. But before that comes, settle for just a little increase today. We've got time for one more. Yes. 
statement seems to be the effect that every time you experience an anger, you step backwards away from it. And uh, quite frankly, that upset me quite deeply. <laughs> 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 I'm not able to just let it go. Right. I need to do something with that energy. Right. I don't think it's, it's helpful to go uh, beat him over, over the head with a tortilla or whatever. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Gosh, these questions are so good this morning. Um, all right. This, uh, this is a question about anger. Uh, evidently, I made a mistake that every time you... Uh, I made a, uh, a statement that every time you, uh, you're angry, this sets you back. So that's, 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 that's real good. There are two kinds of anger. There is, there is a residue of anger that people carry around with them that can take you back as far back as you wish to go. There is no stop, stopping point. So you know if you have this bitterness that you carry around with you, this, this anger, so that almost anything angers you, and it seems to surface, and then it goes away, and it surfaces and goes away. This is what you wish to let go of, and the means that you use, once again, does not matter. And so when I was dealing with uh, men who beat up their wives, one of the pieces of advice that I would often give, and I've mentioned this before, is destroy a table. Destroy something that's very valuable in the house because your ego doesn't know the difference. It's very confused as to which is more important, this new TV set that was just bought or the wife. <laughs> Your ego really doesn't know which is more valuable, and so if you'll just go knock the heck out of the TV set, the ego will be satisfied, but it will not complicate your life as much. You'll just have to save up again for another TV set. But if, but if you beat up your wife, you've, you're going to have all kinds of ramifications from this. You're going to feel a sadness that you have done this to your best friend. And, if, and the thing is going to go on and on and on and on. And you're going to get discouraged. And eventually this will become part of your identity. You will think you are this kind of person. And it's hopeless. So, of course, use whatever means helps. Walking, certain foods may help. Certain dietary supplements may help. Getting a massage once a week may help. A little exercise often helps. People have been helped by jogging. They, dis they disperse. Some people can disperse anger simply by jogging every day. What's the difference between dispersing anger by jogging every day and going to an AA meeting every day so as you won't drink? Or brushing your teeth every day so that you don't have to worry about that problem? There's no difference. We must give ourselves infinite options and then pick a few in peace and do them. Now, there's another kind of anger that until you've laid aside your ego, will still be there. And that is, you can be provoked. So unless you've reached an extremely advanced stage, even though you've let go of this residue of anger, and this takes work, you will not let go of this residue of anger overnight. You will have to work at it. You will have to make yourself a program. You will have to begin. Perhaps you will write down your angry thoughts, and you will do this maybe for three months, writing them down. And then maybe you will take your mother and you will hold her in, in your heart 
and you will forgive her and forgive her and forgive her and forgive her. Or your dad or some uncle. And then perhaps you will go to someone who will work with you for another year. And so let's say you spend three years and there's no residue of anger. Do you know what that means? You are now safe. You will never, ever again fall off the spiritual path. And so was it worth three years? Of course it was. So begin that work and do it. But once the residue is gone, once the bitterness is gone, once the cloud is gone, and this is just one of a thousand problems. It's no worse or better than many other problems we can mention. But once it's gone, you will still be provoked. You can be provoked. So you can get in a situation, for example, when someone is attacking you, and eventually you'll get caught up in it because if you think someone's attacking you, you will attack back. That's why I've said so often, Get out of the situation that's provoking you. That's calling to your idol. Step away from it. Don't sit there and think you have to deal with it. Handle it in some way. Step back. Make your walk home easy. So sit down and have the life you want to have. Begin. Yes, it takes time. Have, the, have your house the way you want it. If you don't want it cluttered, have it the way you want it. Have your social engage engagements the way you want it. Have your job the way you want it. Stop listening to what the world tells you you must have in the form of a job. More money than other people. Better benefits. Some spiritual connotation to the work itself. Foolishness. Bah! Have the job you want to have. doesn't matter whether people look down on you at a cocktail party. Do you really care? See? So your parents tut, tut, tut at Christmas. Well, what are you going to do next? I know that's the job you have, dear, but what are you going to do next? 